Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 188, and today's guests are Brian Swartz and Bridget Garsh, co-founders of Neighbor Schools. I always think the best ideas for a business are from entrepreneurs who are tackling the problems that they have faced in the real world. As you'll hear from this episode, Neighbor Schools is a perfect example. Finding quality and affordable childcare is a tricky thing, and when you factor in the COVID-19 pandemic world we're living in, the stakes are even higher. It was this challenge that Bridget was facing as a new working mom. Brian, Bridget, and their third co-founder, Cedric, all met while working together at Insight Squared, and once they started to poke around the industry, they noticed some critical issues that were ripe for disruption through technology. Thus, Neighbor Schools was born. The venture-backed company provides a platform to help parents find trusted childcare while enabling childcare providers with all the tools they need to successfully run their own home daycare. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like starting a podcast and the details behind their own podcast series called Work Like a Mother, their background stories leading up to working together at Insight Squared, all the details on neighbor schools and how they are revolutionizing the childcare industry through home daycare, how they navigated the business through a pandemic, raising a $3.5 million seed round of funding led by Accomplice, challenges founders face when starting a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, it's hard to believe that we are almost up to 200 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We've built quite an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies. Each episode includes lots of great advice to follow too. So if you haven't checked out all of our past episodes, go to VentureFizz.com backslash podcast for the complete list. And oh, one ask, please share the VentureFizz podcast with all your friends and colleagues in the industry. I appreciate your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Brian and Bridget. Brian and Bridget, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, what we're going to talk about is, uh, you know, a company that you guys have co-founded, Neighbor Schools, which uh, is very timely in today's world that we're dealing with with COVID-19. So uh, I'm excited to learn more about that. But one of the things that I noticed, Bridget, is you started a podcast recently, and um, uh, it's called Work Like a Mother. So authentic conversations with work and mamas that are basically juggling work and motherhood. So uh I thought it'd be interesting because I know a lot of people, because you hear so much about podcasting these days, like, should I start a podcast? How hard was it? Why would I start a podcast? So what was your thought process of starting a podcast you know, to support your business? Well, it really sparked from the fact that I just returned to work myself. So I have a four month old son or he'll, he'll be four months soon. Congrats. And that, thank you very much. Uh, that return to work really was challenging uh, to be totally honest during COVID in particular. And I didn't necessarily have the same support system and network that I had with my first son. But what really inspired me was reaching out and having conversations and having virtual conversations with other working moms that helped me through that challenging transition of, of coming back to work. And it sparked this idea of not only working, returning to work can be challenging, but hearing those stories, hearing other people's experiences was um, so essential for moms to be able to hear those stories, especially if you're having your first child mm -hmm. and you don't really know what to expect. What is that return to work going to look like? What is it like to juggle work and motherhood? And we wanted to put those stories out there. We wanted to share each mom's unique journey of how they're making the juggle work for them, given their circumstances. And that's really what Neighbor Schools is all about, supporting working families and especially working moms. And so the tie-in was just um, incredibly powerful. And more the, the technical side, like what was like, were you, um, like, how did you get it going? Like, you know, the microphone and software or whatever, like how, how was that experience? Well, it's funny because um, Brian and I tested several different audio uh, uh, pieces of equipment there. We, we would get on Zooms and just test out and see 
which things worked well in part because we knew that our guests wouldn't necessarily the best technology able to cut out any background noise. And the reality is that many of these interviews and conversations, a child appears and pops in as well, which, <laughs> which is it perfect. keeps things, yeah, keeps things very authentic and real. Um, but in terms of the, the technical side, Brian, do you want to weigh in on the production elements? Sure. I, I think to be honest, um, you know, one of our, one of the kind of pieces that gave us the confidence to do this um, is actually a couple of folks in Boston Tech. Um, you know, Dave Gerhardt and and Jay Akunzo, both from Boston Tech scene, have been talking for years and years about how this isn't that hard. Um, you can do it. You know, just do it. And you know, you know. So I've been you know kind of following both those guys for you know, God, five six years now. And so. Finally, when, when kind of Bridget had this idea and we kind of had, we finally had something worth saying, um, it actually, we found it to be relatively easy. Look, our podcast is not the most polished one out there. You, uh, this, this podcast we're doing with you, I'm sure is going to have higher, you know, qu uh, quality, you know, post-production coming out, but, uh, you know, we, we get a really oh, authentic, <laughs> oh, we get a really authentic story out there and we can do it, you know, really quick. So, um, you know, shout out to those guys because uh, it was actually, I think, it was exactly three weeks from kind of the ideation of this podcast to launching the first episode. Um, the, the tech is there, the tools are there. Um, we now know what those tools are. Um, so it's been it's been a fun little fun little project. Very cool. Yeah, and, and Dave and Jay are absolutely uh, my inspiration too. Like Dave's, you know, Tech in Boston podcast that used to run, you know, many moons ago before uh you know drift and and now uh privy so um and then jay is you know he's been like a mentor for multiple things through the years so the upshot here is if you are thinking of starting a podcast for your business it's not hard you just got to have content that people actually want to listen to so that's the hard part and keeping it going that's where i see a lot of people fail with podcasting they come out of the gate hard and then they realize this is actually a little bit of work and uh but as far as the actual podcast creation post-production it's very simple as far as all the tools that are out there but all right well let's rewind the clock so um bridget what so where did you grow up what were you like as a kid uh i grew up in boston so i really haven't haven't strayed too far and as a kid i would say i was incredibly inquisitive um actually in fifth grade i had a teacher who was tired of me asking so many questions in school that she had a counter and she had a limit and I was allowed to ask five questions each day and she would literally keep track of them on on the board so incredibly curious very inquisitive um, just asking a lot of questions and and wanting to learn as much as I could about the world got it and then how about um, college and then what'd you do you know post-college yeah, so I went to Wellesley College, uh, incredibly passionate alum, very committed to the school. And I studied economics and psychology, very interesting blend of those two things. And after I graduated, I spent a good chunk of time really blending those things together, working for a company that uh, researched the cost of living around the world and advised companies as they were moving people internationally. So both from a product perspective, from a consulting perspective, really working with companies to have a global workforce. Got it. Brian, how about you? Let's talk about your background story. So where'd you grow up? Same, same questions. Sure, so um, I was actually born uh, in Brookline, so you know, Boston area. Um, family eventually moved to Vermont. Um, so I, I have a pretty strong affinity for Vermont um, and um stayed in vermont through college i went to middlebury college um and uh you know um largely actually for the ski program there um i, I wish i could say it was for some academic um you know reason but um it, it really was for largely for the ski program um and it was a great fit for me um and then uh so i, I there i studied uh also studied economics um with a focus on started out doing kind of a lot of environmental economics work, um, but then um, had a semester abroad experience in Nairobi, Kenya, um, 
and then uh, ended up that really ended up informing kind of what I what I focused on the rest of my time in undergrad. Um, and my first job coming out was actually doing economics research in Uganda. Um, so I was there for two years um, and um, working on evaluating development projects. Um, we would use kind of uh, economic techniques that uh, now in startup land we call A-B testing. Um, but we would A-B test different development projects to see what's the impact of, of this versus that or doing something versus not doing anything at all um, to try to measure efficacy uh, for, for kind of large NGOs and, and, uh, and government projects. Now you both ended up in the tech industry and, and you worked at Insight Squared, which is a venture back company in the Boston tech scene that has a great founding team. And so, so talk about your experience there and kind of you know, how the, the two of you met. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I guess also I, I was there. I was there first, so I, and and I had the the pleasure of kind of hiring or being part of the hiring team to bring Bridget in, um, which is another story that we probably won't have time for. Um, <laughs> but um, no. So when I came back from kind of this first two year stint in Uganda, I, I really was looking for. Um, I, I laugh when I think back on it. I was kind of looking for like experience in the private sector. <laughs> Um, and like startups in Boston, I, I knew I wanted to be in Boston, um, and startups were obviously a pretty big thing. This was around 2012. Um, and it really just, um, somebody, um, actually just said, you know, Insight Squared is doing interesting things and it's a really good team. You can learn a lot about startups. You can kind of learn how it's all done. Um, so if you can find a good role for yourself there, you know, that, that would be a good opportunity. Um. And I very much kind of weaseled my way into this this job. We called it the Chaps team at the time. I don't I don't know if they still call it that, um, but uh, kind of a semi technical um, support team that um, I really had no business joining. Uh, they kind of just like let me in and let me figure it out. Um, and um, you know the Intouch Group was a fantastic team, founding team, like you said. Um, Sam, Fred, Brian learned uh, an immense amount from from those three. Um, and, and the whole team there. So, um, you know, my, I was there for about four years um, along the way. I kind of managed to make the transition into uh, being a product manager. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, a, a whole set of learnings around um, that um, and, and really fell in love with product management. Um, uh, along the way, I was actually wearing kind of the product marketing hat as well um, until we decided that um, I'm not sure I was actually very good at that. So that's actually what Bridget came into to take over and, and fix and run. Yeah, and then Bridget, so uh, product marketing, but then you know afterwards you did something interesting back at Wellesley. So talk about your, your career path from that point. Yeah, so definitely at, at Insight Squared, I was really compelled. I'd come from a small, medium-sized business and really understood how having data was so critical to making better decisions um, when I was at the consulting company focused on global workforce. It's called Air Inc. And so I really was almost uh, inspired. I was inspired by the mission to make analytics more accessible to companies. And in product marketing, which really varies, like if you could think of a role that doesn't have a defined job description and truly differs depending upon the company. It, it's product marketing and it means very different things at each place. But I loved the intersection of product with mark, working with the marketing team, with customer success, with sales, and really working across the entire organization to bring features to market to help educate and make sure that the whole team understood what it was that product was building and what it was that they, they were launching and why they were building it. Uh, so that was in, incredibly uh, rewarding to be able to work with such an awesome team and to work across the entire company uh, along the way. So Brian being a product manager, obviously we worked hand in hand. Uh, we we sat, I think, at one point. It feels like, even though we're through Zoom, it feels like this was my view for, for many, many years. <laughs> right. Just looking across the way to see Brian looking back at me. 
but we worked incredibly closely also with our, our third co-founder, Cedric, um, who was an engineer there and is now our, our CTO. So a, a very, very strong team. Um, after I graduated Wellesley, I had always remained really involved. Like I said, I was a passionate um, student when I was there and really believed in the mission of a women's college, empowering women. And that didn't end when I graduated. I was a very active alum. I was the president of the local alum chapter in Boston, which has four, over 4,000 uh, alumni. And that was just a real part of, of my identity. And the, the college at the time was in the middle of a huge campaign uh, and called the, the Wellesley Effect. And they were looking to raise $500 million, uh, the most money raised by a women's college. And they were looking for someone to come in and run operations within development and really take hold of marketing there as well. So um, someone who was working at the college actually approached me about going to work back at the college and bring the skills that I had been using at Insight Squared and throughout my career and bring it back to the college. And it was an opportunity I truly couldn't pass up. Um, I loved Insight Squared. I loved working there, but at the same time, th this opportunity really fell into my lap, and I I couldn't walk away from the chance to set a record-breaking campaign and support Success? women. Yeah. Yes, we we hit it. Uh, nice. It was it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, and I thought that was really cool how uh, your career path kind of you know took a little twists and turns. It wasn't just like a solid line of to, you know, to become a VP of marketing or something. Okay. So let's talk about starting a company. So neighbor school. So, so how did the idea come about and like, how did you decide to say, okay, there's an opportunity here to build a company? Yeah. So it's, it's a very natural segue from our departures from Insight Squared because when Brian Cedric and I all left Insight Squared, we all stayed in touch. We loved working together. We knew that we wanted to come back together at some point in our careers and start a company with one another. And we started to have those conversations uh, a little more seriously in the summer, I guess, of 2018. And as we started to have those conversations, we had a lot of I don't know, maybe I'll be, I'll, I'll be generous and say mediocre ideas, um, <laughs> that batting those around. Brian, would you, how would you describe them? We're glad we found what we found. <laughs> I'm sure there's some, some fun, fun stories of some of those ideas <laughs> for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. But at the, at the same time, so I was a, a working mom. I was, I had had my son Hudson. Uh, I would get together with Brian and, and Cedric and share the challenges that I was facing as being a working parent. And we were hearing from a lot of working parents just how challenging it was to find childcare. So it was not only my reality, but we, it was surrounding us. There was a lot of noise that we were hearing about, about this. And at, at first, I think we just recognized that it was a problem. Um, we didn't even fully understand how big the problem was until we started to explore it a little further. So there are 20 million children under the age of five across uh, the United States, and 50% of them live in childcare deserts. Wow. It's such, it was such That's, a startling yeah. number. And when you think of the impact that that has on people's ability to work, but especially women, um, and especially the fact that this limits women's ability to actually have a career and work outside the home. And so that was an incredibly, uh, I think, startling, but also inspiring uh, moment for, for us. At the same time, Brian's friends really stumbled into 
uh, home daycare. So recognize the problem, huge problem, starting to scope it. At the same time, Brian's friends discover uh, a home daycare. Brian, do you want to tell that part of the story? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Bridget would, you know, have her story. And then, you know, my best friends at the time um, had just had their first daughter. And uh, he's an economist and, and I kind of, you know, I'm not an economist, but have that a little bit of that in my background. And, um, you know, they're, so they're talking about the prices of local centers. Um, and then they really do like quite literally stumble into, you know, oh, hey, there's a woman around the corner. She's got this home daycare. She's got one spot that you should go talk to, like one of these moments. Um, and we're just having dinner with them. And, and they're just kind of saying like, yeah, it kind of seems like too good to be true. She's right around the corner. It costs like 40% less than the local center. She's 40%. been doing this for like 20. Yeah, it's for, it's huge. Um, she's been doing this for 20 years. Um, like she seems great. Like, and we just kind of had this moment of, well, and then my buddy and I started doing back of the envelope, like, huh, what's this provider grossing? Like she got six kids about, you know, $18,000 a year. Huh? Like mm. there. And then we're like, and how much do preschool teachers make? Uh, okay. You know, median about $32,000. Holy cat. Do we wow. curse on this? Do we curse on this podcast? Um, <laughs> uh, like, holy, you know, hell, like preschool teachers make nothing. Um, right. Home daycare providers can make a real living. I mean, right. and no one's going to get rich doing this, but if you can double or triple your income by going from working as a teacher in a center to working out of your home with just six kids at a time, um, we just kind of all had this like head scratching moment of like, well, why isn't everyone doing this? Um, if it's, you know, if, if parents love it, if it's, and we didn't know very much about child development at the time, but you know, continuity of care is a real thing. Like having the same provider with the child every single day, as opposed to kind of being a, a revolving door of assistant teachers in a center is, is a real concern. Um, and then there's just the question of access. I mean, there's just not enough infant spots, um, in this, in centers and nannies are, are prohibitively expensive for, for most you know, working folks, especially folks in, in their, you know, late twenties and thirties. Um, and so we just kind of had like, so we kind of got obsessed with this question of like, well, why isn't everyone doing this? Um, and, and that is really what led us down kind of the first pass at, at neighbor schools was um, just really thinking of it like SMB software, which is okay. If we can remove the friction um, that, you know, or, or I guess if we can find people who want to open home daycares, but aren't able to, or just aren't being successful doing so, um, is software one answer to that? Uh, and what we ended up learning is that um, there actually are a ton of women, and, and I say women because it is you know, over 99% women, it is, it is a gendered field. And so we just acknowledge that. Um, you know, in 2019, for instance, over 3,000 women went and took uh, started the licensing process in Massachusetts um, and almost exactly 10% ended up succeeding. So the other 90%, wow. the other 90% will fail to get a license and ever open. Um, and, and that's a huge, you know, that's, that's a huge loss to them. It's also a huge loss to society because society needs these childcare spots. Um, so, you know, it is the most, so the licensing process is there like, like all these hoops and just things that you're like, mind-numbing forms like just that's exactly that's exactly it and you know one thing that we want to always be clear on is that the regs are good um child care should be regulated um and and home daycare is regulated in a way that you know babysitting and nannying and, and nanny sharing is not um home daycare is regulated the same way a center is regulated it's the same department at the state level um they have the same um health and safety um you know requirements they have the same inspection you know requirements from the state, you know, so, so it really is a professional operation. It just is done out of the provider's home. Um, so we really kind of set out to build software to say, okay, if you're great with kids and you've got a home that can accommodate a program, we're going to create kind of the comprehensive supports so that you can get a license, set up your business entity, um, manage the whole business on this platform, 
uh, and, and you can focus on the kids and let the software take care of everything else. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Cause it's like, there is a lot of, to running a small business. Like you said, you gotta get licensed first. You gotta uh, handle the operations, taxes, right? Like things like that. Uh, marketing. Yeah, I can say that like I spent, you know, whatever, five, seven years, however you wanna think about it, preparing to, to start a startup. Like this has been a goal of mine for years and years. And I was still very ill-equipped for basic compliance work, taxes, you know, all yeah. of the kind of the, the blocking and tackling that goes into a you know, startup that, that no founders talk about because it's just not fun. Um, but if your jam is like caring for infants and toddlers, like that really is not something that, that excites you. Uh, we right. want to take as much of that off their plate as possible so that they get to do what they love and, and what parents need. And then there's also the risk of you set this up and it's like, okay, how are people going to find out about me? So there's the marketplace element of what you've built too, right? Yeah. And, and that I think was really a learning to us. Um, you know, we, like all founders, we, we think we have a sense of what we're doing when we jump into the space, but uh, you learn a lot as you go. Um, and so, you know, we looked at kind of the macro level and said, okay, we have in aggregate, there's a terrible shortage here. Demand, you know, demand clearly outstrips supply by a lot, you know, by, you know, by a factor of three or five in some places. Um, so if we build it, they will come. Um, well, that, that might be true, but, um, you know, I, I, there's a blog post here somewhere, which is like, there's not a lot of early adopters in childcare. <laughs> Nobody really wants to be the like, oh, you know what I'm going to do with my infant, with my newborn, I'm going to go try something that's never been tried before. <laughs> uh, yeah. that's, that's not really, a, you know, a, a mindset that's very popular. Um, and so, you know, it is important, you know, distribution is really important. Getting the word out there about the service is really important. So um, after we kind of built all the rails um, to get somebody licensed and up and running, that's when we kind of started building the, the two side, the second side of this marketplace, which is um, creating a, a platform and really creating visibility and, and solutions for parents who are searching for childcare. Um, we didn't realize how thin that space was as, as well. Maybe, and, and Bridget, you can probably speak to that more. Yeah, definitely. When, and when we first started, we started really focused on the providers that we had, right? We're, we're still early. We're really focused on the, these few providers that have, um, we've brought through the licensing process. We're trying to fill their spots. So we were very, very localized in how we were marketing, like truly think of one of us at a you know bazaar uh, a street fair handing out flyers to people trying to build with a bubble machine build. we had a bubble yeah, machine it was great and a bubble true. machine nice <laughs> yeah. bubble machines always attract children that's one one learning um but we were really focused on these specific providers we learned a lot along the way as brian was saying one of the key things that we learned very early on was the challenge of matching a parent with a provider. Mm. So in, it, on its face, it seems very simple, like provider has an open spot, parent needs childcare, match me. It's not that easy. Given the regulations around age ranges, given that parents want different things, so some parents want Monday, Wednesday, Friday, some parents want Tuesdays, Thursdays, like matching those things together is hard. And if you're a daycare provider who is caring for children all day long, you don't necessarily have the time and the energy to call back all those families um, to discover their needs and then actually take those needs and plot them out and say, okay, here's my program now this person's looking for care in two months, I need to map these things together, it's, it's really challenging. So it, in addition to it being challenging, or I guess on the flip of it being challenging, it also was such a huge opportunity for technology to come into play, right? Like the human calories needed to be able to do that matching are hard and a pain in the ass, but technology can match those things together very easily and take here's the providers you know open spots here's what a family is looking for and be able to start to bring those two things together so that was really a, a turning point for us in thinking about how are we going to 
help providers fill their programs, but also how are we going to collect information from parents to be able to simplify that entire process and make it ridiculously easy for them to communicate their needs and start to have matching programs right away. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it just makes a lot of sense. I mean, so once they do have like a, a match through technology, then they do like an, like a, an actual interview between the caregiver and the family. So a, a key piece to us was also really telling the educator stories. So um, these educators are inspirational. So we wanted to capture these, the stories of these educators and communicate that to parents so that they had the ability to really learn who is this provider, why do they love working with children, what are they going to be teaching my child every day, what does their space look like. They have a lot of information at their fingertips before they even get to the step of an interview or in our lingo, a tour where they're actually touring a program and getting to meet the educator face to face and see the physical space. Got it. Yeah, because I notice each caregiver has a profile page where it has, you know, information like pictures and information about the person. So um, now I love how you shared the details on how you started to get traction because you're at a street fair, or, you know, like a bazaar. And that's stuff you have to do. It's gritty because you can't just all of a sudden spend a bunch of money on Google AdWords and expect that's going to work. So, so how did you actually get, you know, parents to start to, you know, become customers? Yeah. So, um, localized marketing efforts, I guess, worked for, for a little while, but then we quickly realized that what we needed to do is we needed to build a brand. We needed to become known as not only the, the brand that is going to help you find childcare, but we're the, the brand to support working parents full stop. So as you're thinking about having a child, as you're thinking about returning to work, how can our content, how can our engagement with you really follow that journey and evolution of becoming a parent? And so as we've started to really invest in the brand and launching Work Like a Mother obviously connects so nicely into that because it's reaching uh, our direct target audience, especially women who are planning and thinking about having children and providing that valuable resource to them. Um, that's really where we see the, the future of engaging parents, bringing parents into the top of our funnel is through building this. And then you went on to raise capital. So you raised, I think it was a three and a half million dollar seed round led by Accomplice. So what, what, what was that process like of like, hey, we have an opportunity to build a venture scalable type of, of business? Um, sure. So, you know, we, I'd say we were planning on building a venture backed business from the start. Um, you know, we had raised a pre-seed prior to this, um, to, to that seed round. Um, so, and, and we had known Accomplice for a long time. Uh, we had known Accomplice as, as a team since back when Jeff was, you know, on the board of Insight. Um, so, you know, Fred and, and other founders that, you know, uh, that I know um, from Boston just have, have not, had nothing but good things to say about Accomplice as, as a team. Um, and now having Sam Clemens there um, as, a, as a partner there, um, you know, Bridget and I used to work uh, both directly for him. So, um, you know, having, you know, the fact that we as three co-founders have all worked together extensively in the past, um, it really creates a level of, of trust um, between us. And, and we, I think we can move that much faster. Um, and so, you know, when it was time to raise funds, um, it was, you know, Accomplice was a pretty obvious first choice for us. Um, and Sam really saw kind of the vision of, of what we were building. And, and again, kind of this vision of, um, in his case, kind of the ability for software to really empower citizens to, to do something magical. So, um, you know, to go from being an employee to being a small business owner, thanks to, you know, the SMB software piece of what we do uh, is really kind of what sparked 
um, you know, the, the aha moment for, for Sam, um, and really, you know, has been a big part of what we've worked on with him. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how we, uh, you know, ended up with, uh, you know, going with accomplice for, for the seed round. Um, I'd say maybe more broadly, just in terms of this being a, a venture scale business, um, you know, childcare is enormous. Um, you know, there's, I think Bridget mentioned, you know, there's, you know, 20 million children under the age of, uh, of under the age of five. And, um, and it's something that is so essential. Um, and it isn't a, a public good. I think that um, most people who aren't in this space, they don't give that much thought to this, that, you know, we as a society have said that children between the ages of, you know, uh, five and, you know, 18, they should go to public, they should have public school available to them. And we as a society should, should pay for that. Um, no, we as a society have not made the same decision uh, in terms of infant, toddler, and, and you know, um, up to kindergarten. Um, and um, I think we as individuals and as founders have kind of opinions as to whether or not society should, this should be a public good. Um, you know, personally, I think that childcare should be a public good, um, but it's not, uh, it doesn't seem politically feasible right now. Um, and so, you know, we really strongly believe that there is a social imperative around childcare um, and that this form of childcare, you know, home daycare, licensed home daycare is the best option for providers, children, and, and working parents. Um, and we do think that if we can power this kind of movement, um, kind of this back to the neighborhood movement, there is a, a real business opportunity here. Um, so, you know, we think that um, we at least are, are very motivated by kind of um, the social aspect of, of the business that we're building um, as well as, and, and we think it aligns with a real commercial opportunity. So, so you raise capital, um, you know, you and the team are heads down building a business, uh, hitting great strides, I'm sure. And then this thing called COVID-19 hits and we're in a global pandemic. So how, how does that affect your business initially? And like, where does it stand now? Yeah, so we really switched into triage mode. We knew that we needed to help providers uh, through, through this time. We knew we needed to help families. So we had both sides of the marketplace to worry about and how we were going to help everyone muddle through. Early on, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Obviously, no one did how long, how long this was going to last. When daycares were shut down in Massachusetts, that was really hard. That was hard for providers, hard for families. And we did a few things right away to help as best we could. We were really a communication vehicle. Uh, as information was coming out from the state um, and through the Department of Early Education and Care, we were working nights, weekends to communicate that information as broadly as possible to answer all of our providers' questions, to help them communicate all that information to families, to help them continue to have a connection during that closure as well. Um, we were happily um, surprised by the number of families who actually stepped up to continue to pay providers if that was economically possible for them. We received a lot of notes from families saying, I want to continue to support this program to ensure in part that it's there when we come out of this, but also because they had formed such a close partnership in raising their, their child with this educator. So that's amazing. They, yeah, it, it was amazing. And we took the step to uh, waive our part of the revenue share during that time period because we knew that our providers were taking such a huge economic hit. Mm -hmm. And we didn't necessarily know what systems would be in place for them to be able to tap into some additional you know, economic support. So we quickly made a decision to uh, waive our fees during that closure period so that as much money as possible would go back into their pockets. And that's really how we existed for, for a while. Um, 
Brian might have a few more insights. I was a little distracted during that time because I had a baby, uh, but <laughs> in, in the midst of it all, um, but we, we really, our, our core mission at that time was supporting both providers and families and doing everything we could to facilitate communication and, and keep everything very open. Now we're in a very different place mm -hmm. with daycares reopening um, across the state. We're really actively supporting those providers to get them open. So again, playing a critical communication um, channel between the state and providers and also going the other direction, really working with providers to understand what are the challenges they're facing? Where, where is there a lack of clarity in the regulations and going in the other direction to advocate on behalf of childcare providers across Massachusetts to get more clarity from the state or things, uh, request things that the, the providers need. So trying to get them back up and running as, as quickly as possible. And we've been really flooded by parent demand. Um, and parents are now really returning to work or they're working from home and working from home with small children is, um, I guess, distracting at, at best, but it, it's really not a feasible option. And there's been so much in the press about the, the challenges facing uh, working parents as they've been living through COVID. So there are a lot of parents who are looking for childcare. So we're right back into it and seeing that huge pickup of demand. And one of the most interesting things that happened during COVID was um, having working with employers. So as employers spun up COVID task force themselves to think about how are we keeping people productive and working from home? How are we going to support our now remote workforce or now that some places are opening up and bringing people back into work um, how are we going to help them Childcare has just been top of their mind and so we've started a lot of conversations with companies around how to support their workforce um, in response to covid and find childcare and Children's Hospital was really um, integral in, in helping us to see that and to see the opportunity to work with employers as well. So we've partnered with them um, to offer childcare to their, uh, I think it's 10,000 employees. Wow. That's, I mean, it's such a smart way to approach the business because if you are like, because like, you know, Venture Fizz is a you know, employment branding and recruitment website. And so we kind of have the lens of what's going on with the companies and how people are returning back to work or maybe not, right? Or at least physically in an office. So the future of work is definitely changing in front of our eyes as we speak. And childcare is a massive challenge, massive challenge. So, you know, it's uh, one of those situations that obviously no one more could foresee and want a pandemic, yet we need to adapt as families, parents, workers to the situation at hand. And, you know, neighbor schools is obviously something that can help families get through this and hopefully be productive at work and still have a, you know, an excellent provider for childcare. I, I mean, my kids are teenagers now, but I just know personally, and this is obviously a personal choice for people, but I would be very reluctant to go to a large center right now, you know, cause you just don't know the, you know, the quality the, the, who's there you know you just you, i'd rather have a micro center that has five kids six kids i don't know what the right number is i haven't thought that deeply about it but i would rather have you know it's kind of like what the nba has done with their their league it's in their own bubble and you have to stay within that bubble and there's you know so you just feel comfortable that that's going to be an environment that you are going to be uh you know hopefully you know a better situation for your family but that's my opinion so so um what's what are the challenges ahead like where do you see kind of uh you know because now there's all this this you know, crazy demand and you're going more b2b angle so so what's ahead yeah i think you know when we look ahead things that we're looking to scale up um you know we we really do feel like we have this flywheel 
turning here in Massachusetts. Um, so the more parents that start to search for childcare on neighbor schools, the more providers we're effectively able to support. Um, you know, this is the this is the two-sided marketplace nature of what we do. Um, and so the more parents that are looking, the more providers we can reach out to and say, hey, you know, all of our you know, all of our providers in Dedham are already full. Um, you know, you're not currently part of the neighbor schools network. Do you want to join the network? Uh, you know, if, and as long as it's a good fit and you're you have a certain quality level and, and we we feel good about this, you know, you can join this network. And so that's kind of how the the marketplace is now growing on both sides. Um, and, and so the the spike in demand on the parent side definitely is is fueling that growth on the supply side as well for us. Um, and so so that's kind of turning here um the enterprise opportunity seems really um powerful so we're definitely leaning into that um and you know the 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 thinking just is that it is so important that employers have their most productive people working um and, and working for you know productively through through a downturn i mean everyone's got you know business continuity teams or, or covid response teams forming and so um you know to the extent that, that we can support those teams in hitting their goals of making sure that they're, you know, top performers. And, and, you know, really, you know, if you think about the age at which pe people become working parents, it's kind of your like director level executing, like these people really carry the torch in a lot of these organizations to actually get work done. Uh, and, and in some yeah. cases manage real, you know, significant teams themselves. So um, we think that, you know, that's kind of a, a bracket within most uh, mid-market and enterprise companies that, that really needs to be at, at full force right now. Um, so those are two things. We are simultaneously going to be expanding to the rest of New England, um, you know, really here in, in the coming weeks, um, because, you know, again, we have this flywheel that's starting to spin and we feel like we now have kind of the momentum that, that we can take into other areas. Um, that is a little bit harder uh, you know, we're trying to support everybody from, uh, you know, our Massachusetts, you know, team right now. Um, we're not really able to send people out uh, in the field as, as we might have, um, you know, pre-COVID. So a um, little, little bit of kind of intricate steps there. But for the most part, um, you know, we are scaling up, expanding out. Uh, and then the enterprise, um, you know, opportunity is, is really right in front of us. Does every state have its own set of regulations, like their own authority that's yeah, dictating how to? They do. Um, so, so child care is regulated at the state level. Um, the federal government passes some basic guidelines, um, but then each state adheres to those in, in their own way. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of kind of that bureaucratic rigmarole to get a license, that is on a state by state basis. Um, and, and that's really why we, you know, we kind of fall back to this TurboTax analogy of, you know, you have your state by state, you know, you've got your federal tax return and then your state tax return. And so we will have kind of that module uh, for each of the states ultimately. Yeah, that's great. And businesses like that, I just love, and it reminds me of, you know, PillPack, they had to get authorization to set, you know, ship drugs into different states. And yep. it's like a defensible side of your business. Someone just can't copy because you have to actually put in the legwork to understand each regulations in each state like notarize with pack and sell and and making notaries electronic so yeah and we uh we kind of draw a parallel to um drizzly which also you know highly yes. re highly regulated um you know, marketplace um and it's state by state regs and one of the things that they found which we are also finding now is that um starting in massachusetts uh you know gotta love massachusetts uh, but it is really highly regulated. So, you know, we, right. we think we've stepped over the highest hurdle first uh, and, right. we, and we expect to see kind of each subsequent state to be, to be easier. So, you know, early on in the conversation, we talked about, hey, you know, you guys decided you wanted to start a company and explore different ideas and neighbor schools is what you are building. But what, so what, what has been the, the hardest, like most eye-opening part of, of, of running a company that each of you have experienced? Uh, I think given the stage that we're at now, one of the challenges uh, has been building the, the team and finding the right talent to bring on board and something we've talked about a lot very recently um, as we think of hiring now um, is 
how do you identify people who have that startup mentality, that startup drive, that ability to thrive in an ambiguous environment, that ability to get shit done? How do you evaluate people on some of those criteria so that you're bringing only A players onto the team? Because that's what we need right now, given our size. Um, so that's been incredibly challenging to, to tackle that. And the other one that springs to mind is just the laser focus um, that you need to constantly be looking at everything on your to-do list because there is an astronomical amount to do and be thinking about what can I cut from this list? What is truly going to make this business grow faster? Um, and how do you empower your team to also make those decisions so that you aren't handholding or working with the team to um, really make those decisions for them? How about you, Brian? Um, yeah, I'd say it's, it's definitely... Um, the team ultimately is, is the, the biggest challenge because, um, you know, it's, it's the team that, um, where everybody is really bought in, um, and finding people who are bought into our mission actually hasn't been that hard for us. Um, we have a mission that, that really resonates. Um, and, and I think we have that going for us, which is great. Um, but, um, finding people who are really comfortable with this, uh, the, the fact that like hard things are hard, um, and there's a reason why no one has built, you know, what we're, you know, nobody has built neighbor schools before. Um, you know, one of, I think we're going to talk about books here in a bit, but one of the books that, that I read prior to, um, to founding neighbor schools uh, was the third wave by, by Steve case. Um, and it just talks about kind of like what's left, uh, what opportunities are left and how regulated opportunities are, are still available, uh, opportunities in regulated spaces are available because, well, you build a CRM first because nobody regulates CRM. Um, and, then, and then maybe you build, uh, you know, pharma um, because that's really hard, but like it, it's very obvious. Um, you know, it's very obvious that it, the need is huge and the dollar value is astronomical. Um, and childcare, you know, childcare has been around. Like there's a lot of people who have thought about starting startups in childcare, there hasn't actually been that much innovation in childcare uh, because it's hard because we're talking about real people and, and their lives. Um, and so acknowledging how hard this is, and uh, that sounds really fun, like over coffee, like when you're like batting around ideas for startups and like when you're talking about maybe joining a startup, but then being in the startup, um, like being in neighbor schools and feeling how hard it is um, because we're talking about like, real people and their lives and their livelihoods and, and the lives of their children um, and being like comfortable with so much ambiguity and so much changing um, and trying to move at the pace that, that we really move. Um, that's hard. So I think that, you know, uh, we're feeling pretty good about the team that we've brought together um, and that we are now, you know, working remotely and supporting one another. And, and we have, you know, we have fun working together and, and pushing it that hard. Um, but you know, that, that to me is kind of what it all comes back to. I, you know, I think we all have our kind of individual functions within the organization that, that we, that we enjoy doing and we're good at. Um, but it's kind of creating the, the collective, um, that, uh, you know, is necessary in order to do something that's, that's this hard. Any other books, podcast recommendations that other entrepreneurs should know about out there? Um, yeah, so I actually do believe in, in business books. Bridget knows I occasionally send her links, um, kind of forgetting that she's uh, a working mom and has so much on her plate. Um, I, I have a, kind of a, like a small canon of books that I just recommend everyone read um, before they, they get into this game. Um, you know, the, the Lean Startup, uh, I think everybody quotes it. I don't think everybody has read it. Uh, Innovator Solution, Crossing the Chasm, a hard thing about hard things. Um, like, to me, there's so many frameworks and so much uh, kind of on a daily and weekly basis that, that you can draw on from these books that are really valuable. Um, more recently, I've been on kind of a marketing and storytelling kick. So um, Hitmakers is a, a book that I think I might've actually gotten Bridget to read. Um, 
and, and that, that was kind of a uh, really eye-opening book for me, um, Ogilvy on advertising. So, so I think there are kind of some classics. Um, and then uh, on the podcast side, um, my current um, one is The Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish. Um, just some of the smartest people, thought, you know, really, really thoughtful people, um, really long in-depth interviews, um, but uh, a lot of, a lot of really great nuggets um, from people in different industries that I would otherwise never, never, uh, you know, hear from. Um, and then I, and then I, I really do, uh, you know, every week I do listen to Bridget's podcast, the work like a mother, because um, you know, one, the stories and, and the conversations are, are really genuine and, and just, enjoyable on their own but then i also learn something you know every time from um getting a better in you know more insight and more stories from working moms um and their experience because that's so core to to what we're building here at neighbor schools yeah the the most recent one as brian as brian said full disclosure uh the past few months have have not been a very active reading time in in my life or reading of a different sort let's say uh learning and relearning things related to having a newborn but i recently read patty mccord's book powerful and because we've really been talking a lot about how do you create a team that it has a high performing culture um, without sort of overcomplicating it and without putting in too many processes. She um, was the head of people at Netflix. Um, and so I found her book really fascinating just to think of how she took HR and did it so differently and what the learnings are from that. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. Anytime I see a podcast interview with her, I always listen because she's just no bullshit, you know, the whole Netflix yeah. culture just was amazing. So obviously it's worked out really well for the company, but um, yeah. Uh, three apps you can't live without. All right. Mine might be a little, a little different, um, but Sprout Tracker, which probably, I don't know if people are familiar with, but it's incredibly valuable to moms. I use it every single day. You track, feeding, diapers, um, sleep, uh, the elusive sleep for, for parents. Mm -hmm. So that is, uh, I would say a minute by minute uh, <laughs> application that I use. And I also, we switched over our house to be um, like connect, a connected home uh, mm -hmm. through August. So we use August locks. I don't have keys anymore, which it's kind of a, a weird transition to live through, but I use that app, um, especially when we are away. It's great to be able to let people in. Mm -hmm. Actually, Brian was just doing some construction. So I said, oh, I you can pop over to our house and I could let you in if you're looking for a little escape from the construction. So nice. super valuable there. And then um, Peanut is the other one that I use quite regularly. It's a social network for moms. Mm. Um, so especially when I'm up in the middle of the night feeding Brooks, my youngest, uh, it's a great way to connect with other moms and share advice and uh, listen to their stories. How about you, Brian? Uh, this probably, this probably, I'll tell you a little bit about who I am. I don't really use um, too many apps on kind of a personal level. Um, I actually thought that we were going in the direction of like work productivity apps, uh, which I can talk about. I can, can talk about for days want. and days. Um, big fan of uh, Notion. Um, I think you know, a lot of people are, have now heard of Notion. Um, we use it internally. Well, we abuse it as our CRM, but we use it for everything. We use it for Wiki. We use it for project management. Um, it's replaced probably six different apps for us. Um, and, and it's definitely, it's a learning curve, but um, you know, is, is a, you know, critical piece of our of our system now um i really like front app um uh we use front for mm. all collaborative email um and basically most of the team now doesn't really work out of their their you know, company gmail account it's all all in front and it's just the collaboration is is much better than anything i've seen anywhere else um and then if i had to find a third um I'm coming up. Uh, I'm coming up thin Slack, here. What else Slack I, would I, be I, the obvious one. Yeah, Slack. Slack's <laughs> an answer. Nobody has anybody heard of Slack? It's this little thing. Uh, I started using it instead of GChat a few years ago. Uh, so yeah, I guess I guess I'm on that some too. 
Yeah, front app. I've never heard of that one. So I'm going to check that out. That's really cool. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all the great things that you are up to as far as uh, providing a very you know, meaningful um, you know, service for parents. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> the lifeblood of, of you know, being able to be productive and, and get things done. So um, wishing you all the, the best with neighbor schools and you know, hopefully continued growth and success and, and scaling uh, to, a, to a, hopefully a next anchor company in, in the Boston tech scene. So Brian and Bridget, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, great to be here, Keith. Thanks so much for having us. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.